the oldest man in the Bible. Does anybody know who the oldest man in the Bible was? Methuselah. But who was the most messed up person in the Bible? We run across that person, I believe, without a shadow of a doubt in our passage today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 5, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark chapter 5 for this morning's message. And I was just thinking about this this week as I was going through this passage. How in the world did Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John decide what to write and what not to write about Jesus? What do you decide? How do you decide to put something on the cutting room floor? Even John, at the end of his book, says there are so many things we could have filled all the libraries in the world with the stories of Jesus. But whenever I think about how did they decide what to put in their biographies of Jesus, what to take out of it, it amazes me whenever all the synoptic writers include the same story. This story is found in Matthew chapter 8, in Mark chapter 5, and in Luke chapter 8, it's found in all of the synoptic gospels. And just a little bit of a Bible study here, just a little bit of a Bible lesson. There are four biographies of Jesus in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you look at this chart up here, three of them are called the synoptic gospels. Everybody say synoptic. It means that they are similar in their style and fashion. Now, I didn't put Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I put Mark, Matthew, and Luke because it is most likely that Mark was written first. This was likely the chronology of how they were written. Mark first, then Matthew and Luke took some out of Mark. But John kind of stands on his own in his style and the way in which he wrote his biography of Jesus. But this particular story is found in all of the synoptic gospels. So let's turn our attention to the reading of God's Word, beginning with verse 1. We're going to go all the way through verse 16. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Verse 6, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus has said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Verse 11, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. Verse 15, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. The title of this message is When Three Worlds Collide. 
And you may wonder, why would you say when three worlds collide? Because you actually have three different worlds colliding in the same place. You have the demonic world coming in full strength. You have the earthly world meeting here in the middle. And then you have the power of Jesus, the power of heaven meeting all in the same region in the same event. I also thought about calling this a day all pigs would die because there was a book I read in sixth grade called A Day No Pigs Would Die. Did anybody else read that book or am I the only one? I'm the only one, so I'm glad I didn't title it that because nobody would have got the joke. Some scholars say that this man was not actually demon-possessed, that back then they didn't really know how to handle mental illness, and probably he was just a little crazy, a little bit out of his mind, and this really wasn't a demon possession. We're not going to say that today for a couple reasons. Number one, that's not what the Word of God says. I think God is smarter than that. And number two, that is to downplay the activity of Satan and his demons. Can I just tell you, Satan is alive, Satan is still working today, Satan is at work, and he would like to have his way in each and every one of our lives today. Did you know that? Now, I will admit, this is a rare occasion for demons to work in this way. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about demons. Demons are basically fallen angels who used to be in heaven, who served the one true God, and they chose to, uh, to serve Lucifer, who was filled with pride and wanted to be the one true God. And these demons were fallen angels who chose to follow Satan instead. Their eternal destiny is in a lake of fire that God has built specifically for them. That's who these demons are. But this is a rare occurrence for demons to show up like this. Usually, demons work in a way that is more blinding and more disguising and more masquerading. He would like to show up to church in a full-piece suit, memorizing all of his scriptures, understanding different elements of Christianity, but always working to destroy our lives in a roundabout way. It says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Some of your translations say disguises himself as an angel of light. Now, look at that verse carefully. It does not say that Satan is the angel of light. What does it say? He's masquerading as the angel of light. In other words, whenever Satan is trying to work on our lives, he shows up acting like he's the good guy. He makes his stuff look good often through false teaching from the pulpit in America's churches and the world's churches. But he is always looking to destroy and hurt people. Did you see, did you notice all the ways he, he destroyed this man? Look at verse 3. This man lived in the tombs. Can you imagine how he smelled? Living around rotting flesh, dying corpses. Can you imagine the way he looked and the way he smelled? Verses three and four says, no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. It was not abnormal for a demon-possessed man to carry abnormal strength. Verse five, it says, night and day among the tombs in the hills, he would cry out. He was shrieking, crying out in pain day and night. This man was in agony. Also in verse five, it says, he was cutting himself with stones. He would find jagged rocks and he would just cut his body. He was mutilating his own flesh. And in verse 9, when Jesus asked him, what is your name? Notice he said, my name is Legion, for we are many. That wasn't that man's name. That was the spokesperson of the demon's name. 
He couldn't even talk for himself. He didn't even have control over his own mind. He couldn't even answer the simple question, what is your name? The demons had totally destroyed this man's life. And by the way, the name Legion, a legion was a company of 6,000 Roman soldiers in that day. Now catch this. This man wasn't demon-possessed. He was demons, plural, possessed with 6,000 demons. Wow. This was a very rare occurrence. Now, another side note, there is a teaching out there even among churches that bear the name of Christ that would tell you this is also how the Holy Spirit works. That when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you, you're kind of out of your mind and now you're saying words that you can't even control and nobody understands and you're making movements and weird noises that is totally out of your control and the Holy Spirit is totally taken over. That is contrary to the Scriptures. When the Holy Spirit takes over your body, you're not out of your mind, you're in total control of your mind. What is the last fruit of the Holy Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You don't lose your mind, you don't lose the ability to say the words that you wanna say, you are in your right mind, and that is just another false doctrine that Satan has put into the church of Jesus Christ today. If you look at Mark chapter five, verse six, when it says, when he saw Jesus from a distance, I found this interesting, he ran and fell on his, what? Knees in front of him. Now, this is strange. Demons knew who Jesus was better than his own disciples knew who Jesus was at this point. They knew he was the son of God. They knew he was the Christ. They knew he was the anointed one, the Messiah from heaven. And they fell on his he fell on his knees. Did you know that is going to be everybody's reaction when we see Jesus face to face someday? Philippians chapter two says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every leader from every nation that makes Christianity illegal in their nation and that hunts down Christians, they will confess that Jesus is Lord someday. Joseph Stalin will bow on his knees, if it, if it hasn't already happened, I don't know the timeline of all that, but he will bow on his knees and confess that Jesus is Lord. Adolf Hitler will admit that he is not in charge. Jesus is in charge. Osama bin, in, Osama bin Laden will admit and confess that Jesus is Lord. Every soldier of ISIS will admit that Jesus is Lord. Make no bones about it. He will get the worship and the glory that he deserves from every creature on earth. Do you agree with that today? Now, that's really all I know about the passage, and I want to close with prayer. No, I'm just kidding, but that's how I felt this week when I was studying. I've never really known what this is about. Since I was a kid and I was reading it, I thought, what does this have to do with me? And so I want to do something a little bit different this morning uh, that I, I haven't really preached this way before, but this is what I did in my, in my preparation when I just kept studying and kept running into roadblocks. I got out a piece of paper, and I just started writing down what is God saying to me in this passage? Five phrases, five things that I grabbed out that I wrote down on a piece of paper, and I want to share those with you this morning. Number one, I wrote down, and I have caught this since I was a kid and I read this. It's amazing this man never gave up. 
the second the demons went into the pigs, what did they do? They ran into the Sea of Galilee. They were done like that. This man survived 6,000 demons? I just want to stop for a moment and give some credit to the guy. Sometimes we just need to survive until the breakthrough. By the way, nobody else knows what you're going through. Nobody else knows what you've been through. Nobody else knows what you're fighting. Sometimes the image of God, the power of God, the strength of God in you, it is amazing how he can pull us through some tough times that nobody else knows exactly what it feels like. I can just tell you this. The person sitting next to you right now doesn't know everything that you've been through. It doesn't matter if they're your spouse, if they're your mama, if they're your daddy. They don't know until they've walked in your shoes. And I just want to say for a moment, I've always been impressed that this man survived what 2,000 pigs could not survive. Look at verse 11. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send me among the pigs. By the way, this must be a Gentile area. How do we know that? Because there wouldn't have been pigs or any bacon. They would have really been missing out on life. There wouldn't have been any pigs in the area if this was a Jewish area. He went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to a Gentile area. That's going to be important later. Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. The impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000, that's a lot of pigs, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. This man survived by himself 2,000 pigs that they could not survive for a few minutes. I want to show you a picture of this man. His name is Scott Hamilton. He's a famous American for figure skating. He won 17 national and world figure skating championships. Him and his wife have a heart for missions. They have a heart for Haiti specifically. His story is fascinating. When he was a kid, he was diagnosed with a rare genetic disorder that stunted his growth. And because of that, kids were constantly bullying him and making fun of him and treating him poorly. But then when he was a teenager, he was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer that affected his fertility. As a grown man, he was diagnosed with brain cancer not once, not twice, but three times. He's had a rough go of it. This is what Scott Hamilton said. Any challenge, be it romantic, physical, job-related, athletic, mental, or financial, can also serve as a gift if we allow it to. I calculated once how many times I fell during my skating career, 41,600 times. But here's the funny thing, I got up 41,600 times. That's the muscle you have to build in your psyche the one that reminds you to just get up. The second thing that stood out to me is found in verses 14 through 16. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. Now he's in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Don't show the next verse, but the next verse should read, and everybody celebrated. The next verse should read, and everybody clapped their hands. Everybody got on their feet, and they had a party for the man who was the most messed up man in Scripture, but now he's saved. And everybody was excited and giving each other high fives, but that's not what the next verse reads. Verse 17. <laughs> then the people began to plead with Jesus to do what? 
to leave. Jesus, get out of here. Why would they tell Jesus to leave? Most towns would beg Jesus to stay, like Capernaum. He would perform some miracles. They'd say, please stay. And there'd be thousands of people show up at the house door. Please stay. This region told him to get out of here. And I struggled with that. Why would they tell him to leave? And then it hit me. These 2,000 pigs represented that area's economy. And any time Jesus gets in the way between us and our pocketbook, uh-oh. Hey, I'm okay with going to church as long as it doesn't affect my pocketbook. I'm okay with doing the Jesus thing as long as you never ask me to give. I'm okay with... Uh, entering into the faith and contending for the faith as long as, as long as you never mention money. And this group of people sat there and said, Jesus, you're welcome. Actually, when you stop and think about it, they were okay with 6,000 demons living in their area more than they were okay with Jesus, the Son of God, living in their area because he affected their economy. You know one of the greatest examples or one of the greatest reasons why you know you are in the faith when you are living with an open hand not with a closed hand. I wrote down this in my journal. Money was their God. Did you know that Jesus talked about money more than he talked about marriage? By a lot. Out of 38 parables, could be 40 parables, out of 38 or 40 parables, almost half of them are about money. Why do you think Jesus talked about money so much? He gave us these verses like, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. He knew the number one little G God that would get in the way between your lordship of Jesus and, and your life is your bank account. Jesus, it's cool. Where, hey, you saved the man's life, but you just, hurt our, you just hurt my bank balance. Get out of here. Wow. In Mark 10, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus, wants to inherit eternal life. Jesus, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, you're doing great. One thing you lack, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. What did the man do? His face fell, sad, and he walked away from heaven for pigs, metaphorically. You know, God doesn't have a habit of saying to test him. Actually, the only area in the Bible that I think God says to test him is in this area right here. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. That's a promise from God. How many of you believe God will keep his promise if we open up and live with an open hand? And how many of you believe that today? And then the next portion of Scripture that we did not read, I left it for this part, verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, that means 10 cities, it was a 10-city region, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Go and tell the people how much the Lord has done for you. That's called evangelism. It's not more complicated than that. 
It's no more simpler than that, but it's when we open up our mouth and tell people what Jesus has done for us. That's called sharing the gospel. This man wanted to be a follower of Jesus. He wanted to be the 13th disciple of Jesus, and Jesus said, no, I need you here. By the way, if you're here today, it's because God wants you here today. There's somebody in this area, a neighbor, a family, a friend, who you need to tell what the Lord has done in your life. Now, I, I run across people all the time. I wish I was somewhere else. I wish I lived here. Uh, and, and I've even heard people complain about the Houston humidity. I don't get that. The humidity is so low here. I just don't understand why people would want to be anywhere else in the world other than Houston, Texas. But people have asked, hey, if I could be somewhere else, well, well, before you jump ahead, if, if God has you here right now, God wants you here for a reason, to make an impact on somebody's life. So this is what I wrote down. Life isn't about what I want, it's about what he wants. Life isn't about what I want, it's about what he wants. Let me introduce you to Michael Judge. This man right here is the first responder to the attacks on 9-11 on the World Trade Centers. And he was the first one to lose his life. They never did recover his body in full, but they did recover his wallet they gave his wallet to his family, and inside the wallet, whenever they opened it up, there was a piece of paper with a prayer written on it. They could tell he had used it a lot. Here's what the prayer said. Lord, take me where you want me to go. Let me meet who you want me to meet. Tell me what you want me to say, and keep me out of your way. You know what? That sounds a whole lot like whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's not about what I want. It's about what God wants. Well, I want to live in Hawaii. Well, join the club. Well, I want to live closer to my family. I can relate. But you know what? Here's what Scripture says. You know, I've never pointed this out before. We have a number of families in here who have moved away from their family for the sake of the gospel for the sake of the kingdom of God. I want to share this verse with you, if that is you. Matthew 19 says, everyone, everybody say everyone. This applies to you, if this applies to you, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. There are people in this room that will get a hundred times the reward because they left their family for the sake of the gospel. Wow. So the ultimate goal of our parenting, just so you know, isn't to keep our bloodlines together, though I would so love that. And if you live close to your family today, you need to rejoice. That's a good thing. But if you have moved from your family for the sake of the kingdom and for the cause of Christ, you need to rejoice because you have a reward 100 times because of that kind of commitment. And then it goes on. I wrote two more things down, and you were hoping that was the end. The fourth thing, God can change anyone. I didn't say God can save anyone, though that's true, but Jesus' goal isn't just to save us, it's to change us. It isn't just to forgive our sins, it's to totally transform our life. God can change anyone. We could have titled this message, Maniac to Missionary. We always say that the Apostle Paul was the first missionary to go to the Gentiles. That's not right. Whenever preachers get 
into our little preaching mode, and the first missionary Gentile was the Apostle Paul. Actually, it was this guy. This was the first Gentile missionary. We don't even know his name. We're going to meet his name someday. But whenever we, whenever we look at this guy, we say, well, I'm pretty messed up, but I'm not as messed up as this guy. Have you ever said that about us? I'm messed up, but I'm not as messed up as... <laughs> I'm messed up, but I'm not as messed up as Dale Hankey. I'm messed up, but I'm not as messed up as birthday boy Kevin Brown over there. This is birthday, by the way. Man, I'm sorry. That just came out. That just came out. <laughs> Are you sure you're not as messed up as this guy? Where was he living? Among the tombs? Among the dead? What does Ephesians 2 say about us before we accepted Christ? We were dead in our sins. We were dead in our transgressions. Are you sure? Before Christ, we weren't all at the same level. He, was the, he became the first missionary to the Gentiles. By the way, he travels this far for this, gent, uh, for this maniac. He turns around and goes back to the other side of the lake because they reject him. Nobody wanted him in that region. We're going to get to Mark chapter 7 at the end of Mark chapter 7 someday. And when we get there, he comes back to this region. Everybody's welcoming him. Why do you think everybody's welcoming him in Mark chapter 7? Because this man stayed and plowed the soil in that area. What a difference he made. Lastly, look how far Jesus went for one man. Look how far Jesus went for one man. This is what stood out to me the most. What is before Mark chapter 5? Mark chapter 4. And what happened in Mark chapter 4? Jesus crossed the lake, and there was a storm, and the disciples said, we're going to die, and Jesus calmed the storm. But right before that, Jesus said, let's get in the boat. We need to go to the other side of the lake. And when you look at this story, Jesus knew he was going for one man. How important must this man be? How important must you be? How far did God go for you? How far did he travel for you? Husband came home from work one day, and he saw the note on the table that read, she had had enough and she was leaving. The kids would be home from school soon, supper was on the table, make sure they eat, have them do their homework, have them do their chores, make sure they're in bed by 8.30, but she's gone. He was shocked, but had little time to process. As the kids come in and he starts to get supper ready and they eat and they do the chores, they do their homework, they're in bed by 8.30, about an hour later as he's finally cooling off, the phone rings and it's her, and he says, honey, they, they ate, they did their chores, they're in bed now, they did their homework, but I love you. Won't you come home? With that, she hung up the phone. A couple nights later, same phone call. Honey, they're in bed, homework's done. I love you, won't you come home? Click. This happened over and over again until a couple months he'd had enough. He hired a private investigator, poured all his life savings into the investigation, found out she was staying in a cheap motel in the middle of Iowa in the middle of nowhere. He borrowed some money from his parents, got on an airplane, and flew to Iowa. And while he's on the plane, he's rehearsing in his head, what am I going to say? How am I going to say it? When I see her for the first time in a while, how am I going to convince her to come back home? And then he's, he finds the motel. He walks up to the door. He knocks on it. And the moment she opens it, all of the rehearsed speeches that he had in his mind went out the door. He couldn't remember them, and he just looked at her and said, honey, I love you. Will you come home? And with that, she threw her arms around him. They packed her suitcase together. She flew home back with him. And it took a couple days, but he finally conjured up the courage 
to just ask her as they're sitting around on the couch, the kids were already in bed. He said, honey, over and over again on the phone, I kept telling you, I love you, won't you come home? Why did you not say yes until at that motel? And she said, the moment I opened that door, before then it was just words on the phone, but when I knew you would go that far for me, I finally knew you really loved me. He loves you. How do you know? Look how far he went just for you. How important you must be. He would cross the Sea of Galilee through one of the worst storms, a tornadic storm that they almost lost their life. He would go all the way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee for one man, then they get back in their boat and go all the way to the other side. That is a gospel picture of how far God went for you and I. Aren't you grateful for God's 